May grace and peace be multiplied to each of you this morning in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. For our meditation on this, the 20th Sunday after Trinity, we return our hearts and our minds to the reading from St. Matthew we heard a moment ago, the wedding feast for the king's son, as recorded by the evangelist for us. As we contemplate this sacred teaching of Jesus, let us do so and proceed in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, Jesus' parables always have a way, a knack of catching us off guard. They're meant and designed to do just that. They're intended to shock us sometimes, not randomly, but to shock us and revive us out of our comfort zone. They disrupt our mental models, our ways of looking at the world, our paradigms. They cause them to shift. Our way of looking at reality is turned upside down. This is because Jesus, among other things, our Lord, our Savior, our King, our Healer, He is the great Master Educator. Think about it. The title He is often greeted with when people come to see Him is Rabbi, a title of respect, professor, teacher. Jesus is a Master Educator. That means he's a skilled facilitator of learning. And along with the expert use of Socratic questioning back and forth, Jesus is the master in good rabbinical fashion of asking questions. He uses the parable as his primary teaching device to deliver his wisdom to us. Jesus, in doing that, in crafting parables, creates stories that pull us in. So much so that we become immersed, we become part of the parable. We're transported, we journey along, we listen, we watch the scenery as we travel. All is good. And then wham! Jesus throws us a curveball, takes us in a different direction. Jesus' parables have a way of getting us turned around, of causing us to see things from a different angle. Jesus often starts easily enough with images that we can readily grasp, comprehend, and recognize, often picking out the scenes as he's traveling and walking and using them for illustrative purposes. In the case of our text this morning, we have a king, and this king plans and promotes a wedding feast in the honor of his son. Now, right away, lifelong Christians immediately start to have their neural pathways ignite, make connections with what we recognize, activate prior learning that we know. We find those links and we say, yeah, I got it. I can see these figures. I can see that the king is the father. I can make that connection. I can see that the son, that, that's, that's kind of a Jesus figure for me. We know Jesus is telling us something as he begins by clarifying that his objective is to teach us something about the nature and the way that the kingdom of heaven is. And so these figures fit in. This king who is like the father figure and this son who is like the Jesus figure. So far, so good. Then the turbulence begins. The the king, we are told, sends out messengers personally to invite the guests to this lavish feast. The guests flat-out refuse. Undeterred, undaunted, the king does it again. He makes another invitation, and this time, 
He says, you know what? What they lack is good promotion. Go forth, my servants, and tell them, describe to them what this feast is all about. Tell them about the festivities. That'll bring them in for sure. Again, we know, the guests blow off the king. One would rather remain on the farm. Another would rather go and tend to his business. Another would rather go spend the weekend on the lake with his boat, watch the game, whatever it is. Then Jesus tells us this part of the parable. Some of the invitees go so far as to seize the king's representatives, ultimately mistreating them, we're told, and then escalating that up in violence to the point of killing not just these servants or slaves, but these representatives, these extensions, these these messengers of the king himself. Today, dear friends in Christ, is an interesting Sunday in our church calendar. We actually have two gospel readings we could choose from, and they both really convey the same thing and really play off each other really well. If you back up uh, to Matthew 21, the previous chapter, we could have gone with that text today as well. You're familiar with that one. In this one, a landowner plants a vineyard. He puts a fence around it. He digs a wine press. He builds a watchtower. Harvest time comes, and the tenants who work this land refuse to give their produce over to the master of the vineyard. At harvest time, once he's rejected, he even sends out servants to deliver this message, much like the king in the parable today from Matthew 22. After more attempts at sending his servants, the landowner sends his very own son as his representative, and what do they do? They seize him, and they throw him out of the vineyard, we're told, and they kill him, another escalation of violence. This parable is an account of God sending the prophets, who we know through salvation history were mistreated, were beaten, were ultimately killed in many instances. And then even God sends his own son, who would also be put to death, Jesus our Savior. So both parables today, from Matthew 21 and Matthew 22, fit together really well. We could have gone with either one. They both help us with our understanding of salvation history. God comes first through his prophets and then through Jesus. Some people reject both. Some people reject the king's invitation to the wedding feast. Everyone, a broad net is cast, dear friends in Christ. Everyone is invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, which will have no end. That means the outcasts. That means the marginalized. That means the unclean of all ages and times. The king says, Go therefore into the main streets. Invite everyone that you can find to the wedding banquet, not just these select invitees. All is well with that stage of the plan. We back up and we know that, that the king is not pleased with those who reject and sends his troops, the text tells us, to dispatch his vengeance. After this, he casts this broad net, asks everybody to come to the banquet. That's going great. The party happens. It's now well attended. It's in full swing. Everything described in the promotion is being delivered. The king is making his rounds. There's a lot of paintings you could find if you look up this parable 
on Google Images, and you can find all these great masterpieces of the king going among his people. And then he beholds our famous character, our wrongly attired guest. The king approaches this man and he says, Friend, how did you get in here without your wedding robe, without your wedding garment? Now at this point, the wrongly guest dressed could have replied right off the cuff, Well, your servants practically grabbed me and dragged me in here. What do you expect? But we're told that the man gives no reply. He gives no rebuttal. He gives no defense or alibi. This leads to the ending that makes us wonder where our king and where Jesus, by extension, is coming from this morning. Because it seems a little bit not like what we would expect from a parable meant to describe the kingdom of heaven. The king in this parable seems to do just as he pleases, and it seems to not fit with our theodicy, our idea of what a kind and just God figure would do. He renders immediate punishment on the spot, punitive action. He tells his servants, don't just eject this guy, don't just 86 him from the festivities here, but cast him out into the void, right? Bind him hand and foot, we're told, as if the casting's not enough. Let me walk around, right? Throw him into the outer darkness, unless you need more uh, description of that. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We hear this, and you can't help but think, dude, why does the kingdom of heaven seem so unjust, so harsh even, strange? Well, if we back up, which we need to do, do a rewind, we gain a little more insight, and we see what we miss if we jump to that judgment of this parable, which is often done around us critically. If we back up, we gain the insight because Jesus says that the servants were sent out to the streets and they gathered all whom they found to come, good and bad, all included. So the wedding hall was filled with these guests, good and bad. Now, though this is got kingdom parable language to it, it's a, it's a parable to describe what the kingdom of heaven is like, you can take a look at its location in the gospel and see it's in Matthew 22, along with the previous parable, Matthew 21. It's getting late in the game. And thus, this is very much located in what they call the zone where you find the parables of judgment. Though it's talking about the kingdom, it is, there's also an aspect of judgment to these parables. Much like other parables told during this time in Jesus' ministry where it's getting late in the game in Holy Week. In the same week, for instance, this is a time when Jesus is telling other great judgment parables like the separating of the sheep and the goats also occurs during this time. In that parable, we know that those who took care of the least will be placed on one side. Those who did not feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, and so on will be placed on the other. There will be a sorting, but they all arrive good and bad at the same time in the same location, much like our parable and also the Matthew 21 parable, too. Judgment will fall on those who didn't care for the needy at that time. In the same way, today's parable of the kingdom of heaven is also a picture of coming judgment. But if we focus too intently on the weeping, 
on the gnashing of teeth of the casting out into the outer darkness of that immediate, immediate punitive judgment by this harsh king figure, we will be compelled to miss the grace that is infused still in this parable, and it is there. It is not a doom and gloom parable. This comes because the king gives free invitation, dear friends in Christ, to the wedding banquet. And that means that no one has to be there by way of earning their own right to sit at the table at the wedding feast. Both the good and the bad are encouraged to come as they are and come to the venue. Now, backing up for a minute in those days, a wedding was a big deal, like it's still a big deal today, as we talked about earlier today from Kosovo eastward. You have a big deal when you have a wedding. It's a village affair, lasting days and weeks, where whole communities come out. And that day, there was a lot attached to the wedding feast as well. We know this from Jesus' first miracle uh, of turning water into wine, right? And that day, guests at the wedding feast weren't expected to provide their own attire. They would be given robes, issued their apparel upon entering so that they would be properly dressed for the finery of the occasion. Thus, we see, knowing that, that the invitation is open. The feast, the wedding feast, is an unearned gift. And guess what? So is the necessary clothes and attire to be worn at the feast as well. For the early Christian church, this was an easy link to make. This would have talked about having neural pathways ignited and finding patterns we recognize they would connect this directly with which what was going on with them daily. For the early Christian church, the parallel was easily baptism. They made that mental link immediately with this parable and the clothing. It was obvious. It was easy. The early Christian church, their practice was upon baptism, those converting to Christianity would come out of the baptismal waters after much preparation. And at that point, it was usually done naked or nearly naked. They were cold, cold water. They would come out of that and immediately have a robe placed on them, both to keep them immediately warm from the shock of the water, but also as an outward sign of the inward grace of being clothed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Candidates for baptism were washed clean at that point by the blood of Jesus the Lamb who was slain. And that righteousness covers their sins, and that symbolized that to, that to them. That showed how real that was for them at this time. As the wedding feast is the judgment at the end of time in our parable, that is the parallel, the robe expected of the guests is that same baptismal robe, dear friends in Christ. The grace here is that the guests, both good and bad, don't have to provide, procure, or produce that robe out of their own efforts, out of their own coffers, of their own devices. It's provided up front. So the king this morning really wants this man to explain how, and more importantly, why are you improperly attired after you've been issued this garment? All you had to do is not even make sure you put it on. You had to make sure you did not put it on. Just don't take it off. That's it. This garment was already provided, the one needed for the feast. Dear friends, it doesn't fit with the rest of Jesus' teaching and message that the point of our story would be that, hey, we're good. 
We've already got our baptismal robes here today. Therefore, we can afford to be smug and hang out and watch this guy get tossed from the party. Doesn't work that way. No guest at the wedding feast should enjoy seeing others exiled, taken out by the bouncers out of the wedding banquet. We want to continue to invite others to come to the feast. We also want to continue to sustain those who are there. Keep your garment on, please. <laughs> Dear friends in Christ, not that kind of party. The feast is not reserved for the perfect, but for those who are willing to be perfected by the generous offer of the host, the generous provision of the host to cover all of our imperfections with his own robes of perfect righteousness. Far from making us arrogant or proud or rude or boastful, this is cause to be humble, knowing that we neither deserve nor earn this robe of righteousness, this invitation to have this robe placed on us. In short, having been perfected in Christ doesn't give us the license to continue to live unchanged, dear friends in Christ. And that's important because that's the allegation of some critics that we respond with. It doesn't give us that. There's no cheap or, cheap or free grace here. We're to respond to God's call by conforming our lives more closely to Jesus' life, the firstborn. If there's a firstborn, it goes to reason there are secondborn that follow him. That's us. We're to respond to that call. A way to put it would be that having been freely and absolutely justified, we are freed to live sanctified. Now this parable, dear friends, may sound offensive on the surface up front. This reading. I know it's the middle of football season and we're used to seeing a lot of challenges to calls on the field. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but I like college basketball. And to use a basketball analogy, we might read and digest on this, this particular parable and want to call a foul on the king at the moment of this ejection of this guest. doesn't go with what we think God is like or grace or the kingdom for that matter. Dear friends in Christ, sports analogies, whatever they are, football, basketball, hockey, they all fall short anyway. In sports, you have to earn your place on the team by your own effort, your own merit your own showing that you can play and perform. It's not like that for the kingdom of heaven. To then enter the kingdom of heaven, it's different. You're issued what you need, given your uniform to wear on the team. You're given your number, your name on the back, your equipment. Everything you need is given up front and freely. No tryout, no time trials, nothing like that required. Dear friends in Christ, to enter the kingdom of heaven, we just have to receive this gift freely offered and provided to us by our King and live into the life to which God has called us day by day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.